I'm going to do at least three awful things in here. One of the awful things is, if I do a good job of this, you will walk away a little bit compassionate about, about astrologists and those that liked astrology. Now, you'll only feel that way about really old astrology, so it'll be okay. But you may, if we do this well, find yourself thinking of that in a very different way. A second awful thing that we'll do tonight is as we retell the Galileo story, the good part of that is you'll hear a completely different story than I expect you've ever heard before, but one of the awful things is you might find yourself actually feeling an awful lot of compassion for the Roman Catholics who are getting run over by the whole Galileo experience as you hear that story. So, so that's going to be number two. Um, the, the third awful thing is as wonderful as it is to seek and to maintain and to have a comprehensive Christian worldview, we're going to find that those don't always work out well, and sometimes they can be problematic if we aren't also very humble about recognizing that what we think is a comprehensive Christian worldview has muddled inside of it some of our own opinions and thoughts and feelings about how things work. So that's, that's, what, that's what should happen along the way to us seeing how, in a really remarkable way, the stars, the stars of the heavens, really changed the way the Reformation happened and opened a door, made it possible, or maybe we would say assisted in the breakdown of the way society had always been in a way that allowed the Reformation to go forward when it might not have. One final piece that we're going to go through as we get there is, I'm not talking a lot. It's going to maybe even feel weird. The first half an hour or so of the conversation, which is, you know, about 10% of it, the um, first 30 minutes or so, you may feel like we haven't talked about the church at all in any even small part, and you may not know where the Reformation comes in, because when we do talk about the church, it'll usually be the Roman Catholic Church. But what we're going to do at the end is we're going we're to spend a little bit of time looking at Calvin. Because we're going to see some really interesting things in Calvin. And we're going to see him fitting in in like, we're going to see him fitting into the old worldview that we're going to dig into. We're going to see him speaking in a way that we would consider very positive as we look back today. But we're also going to see him speaking in some ways that we look back on and we go, oh no. Because we have a tendency to make people into heroes or whores. Actually, Calvin gets both of those. You don't hear many people say Calvin was just all right. Usually you hear, oh, Calvin, or oh, Calvin. But so if you want to make Calvin into the good Calvin, we're going to have good things from Calvin. You've got some quotes that I think are really interesting there that hopefully we'll have time to read through, but you'll have them if we don't. But you're also going to hear Calvin speaking out really strongly against Galileo. And so that's going to look like the bad Calvin who, oh yeah, he didn't even get the way the sun and the moon worked. So um, we'll have that towards the end. We'll find some applications for us as we go forward. So let's dig into this. Here's the first thing that we need to do. And this first thing is a little different than the usual academic talk that I might give. We need to enter to be able to do this well for us to feel some of the really cool stuff in this. We're going to have to try to immerse ourselves into a narrative, a picture of the world like we haven't, ever, we haven't ever thought of it before. So, you know, sometimes you get a book and it's an alternative, alternative universe book. 
And the author may start at the beginning and he sets up what kind of a world it is. And you learn these rules, physics is different or morality is different. That's really common. You know, the books where you can just do whatever you want and things will work out well in the end. Um, But, you know, alternative universes are part of what gets set up. We need to do that a little bit. Because for us to feel what the people during the course of the Reformation felt about some things that really don't seem all that important to us today, we're going to need to see what their worldview was like. So let's do that right now. I want to talk to you about a couple of things. One of them is, and this is a good one, we, like, we should like this. We should be seeking this kind of thing in our education. But something to understand is at this point in time, all of really European academia was ruled by the notion that all truth was God's truth. And that there was a comprehensive picture of what was true that could be drawn out together, that it all hung together, all the disciplines, the arts, literature, science, history, that above and beyond all of that was theology. And theology was the queen of the disciplines. If you were a theology professor at that point in time, you had the highest, the most respected position in the university. Alas... Now we get our own schools. Um, but it was, that was the queen. And, and theology belonged to the church much more thoroughly and entirely than it does right now. We now have a church that if you said, what's the church's theology, you'd immediately answer, which church? But at that point in time, it was much more comprehensive and unified. So just bear that in mind, and something that we should know, you may have read or heard or had somebody say at some point in time that those stupid people in the Middle Ages just believed everything everybody had said beforehand. And that's really not true at all. But what did happen is in this big, comprehensive academic worldview that had theology at the top, You had people looking for God's truth everywhere and working unbelievably hard to figure out what is the truth and to pull it all into a system and make it all hang together so that all of the different pieces could be understood to be God's. But note something, when it all hangs together, if you poke at one part, that can have effects that run through the entire system. And so if... Because there were, these were critical people. They had big fights. If you go read through the Middle Ages, it wasn't like the scholars all got along. They fought and argued and didn't know who was right and when they were right. But they looked for truth and they sought truth. And as we're going to see, especially in Aristotle, but if you criticized one piece, you had a responsibility to show how that would play out in the overall system. That's good, That's good. We should have worldviews like that. If people fought more comprehensively today, things would work better. But it doesn't work out well when everybody's sure that most of it is already handled and taken care of. So that's the first thing. First thing is big comprehensive picture. Now here's the next thing, and I actually brought along... um, a juggling ball. Luckily, I have a boss and I can say, yeah, gosh, I really need a juggling ball. And I can call my boss and say, hey, can I go in on your desk, Dr. Lamerson, and borrow a juggling ball? And I, I don't think there's very many people, especially in seminaries, that can do that. But so I get to. You know, I used to teach physics. I taught physics in high school and I taught some college physics. 
And when we taught physics, I had the great pleasure of saying to students all the time in a question, imagine there's no air or imagine there's no friction or imagine there's no this or imagine there's no that. Imagine there's no thunder. That we, we, had, this, we, we had to do artificial universes in which to do our physics. Now, it wasn't really an artificial universe, but the problem was the things that we had been taught mostly only showed up when you proved it in an experiment. It wasn't the way real, the regular world works. The physics at this point in time was not our physics. Newton, remember, we've got him on our list. We're going to get to him at the very end. Galileo started to do some of the laws of motion. At the time that we are going into the Reformation, physics was dominated by the picture that Aristotle had painted of it. And, and a lot of it was really good. Aristotle was not a Christian, although there were people in the history of the church that tried to make him into one because he was so good and said so many smart things that they wanted to Christianize him because it felt better to like him so much. But Aristotle had said, effectively, and I'm oversimplifying because this whole thing is so complex, that mass, matter, like this and like all the other stuff, it was naturally inert. It didn't want to move. You know, when you talk about a ball, if you put it in motion, it naturally stays in motion. That's not what you see. If, if I throw this ball up in the air, you don't expect it to keep moving until you see something stop it. You actually expect it to go up, stop moving, start going down, hit the ground, and pretty quickly stop. And, and things go down, and by the way, in case anybody's misled you, there was an understanding that the earth was a sphere and that there were spheres around it. The flat earthers were uneducated even then. The, the understanding was that matter, it's like it knew its place. It had something that it wanted. That's not really feelings, because feelings they would have understood. They would have kept those for animals, but uh, they talked about occult properties. So this stuff wants two things. It wants to be down, and it wants to be stopped. Now, if you think about your experience of the world, that's actually more accurate than what you learned in the physics class from somebody like me in terms of what you see. Stuff, unless something's pushing on it, in our everyday life, tends to go down and stop. For this worldview, it's more than just that it wants to go down and stop. This was the center of the universe. God had established the earth here, and this was the worst place. Mass was just stuff. And underneath, in the middle, things got even worse as you descended into real hell. But this was the worst place to be. You'll hear this narrative from people attacking the church. You know, the church wasn't willing to accept Galileo because he took them out of the center of the universe. No, this was the bad place to be. This was where the matter was. But there wasn't just matter. There wasn't just stuff that wanted to stop. In our worldview, remember, we're trying to get into this and believe this and remember this. We also know that sometimes things do go up, like a fire goes up. And, and you see a fire, and you light a fire, and even an ember, while it's still lit, it has this energy, and energy and spirit. They want to go up. But as the ember goes out, it loses the ability to go up, and it does, the ashes do what matter do, does and go back down to the ground because they're just stuff. 
So there was a better and a worse. We have up and down, but we don't really have better and worse. There was up and down, but it was better and worse too. This was worse and that was better. And so here, as we move past physics, is where this is where it gets really interesting. And this is where if we don't get this, astrology makes no sense, the impact of the stars makes no sense, and any number of things that we would read in old textbooks will make no sense either. See, in addition to this physics of stuff and energy, and there's more to it than that, really spirit, there was also a getting better as you went up that became increasingly perfect. So now I want you to to note something here as we get ready to talk about this. We're talking about Europe, talking about Northern Europe, talking about a time period where there's no street lights, when it really was relative to your means, pretty expensive to even have a candle on. We get worried about our electric bills and theirs were a lot worse. The days were short, the nights were long, and there were thousands of years of people observing the stars. And their observations were remarkably good. And one of the things that was amazing about the stars is the stars just kept doing the same thing over and over again. They just kept doing the same thing and doing the same thing and doing the same thing. And nothing here in this world does the same thing. And so there was this recognized beauty to the spheres above us. And so as you went up, there came to be this worldview that it gets worse as you go down and better as you go up. And the explanation was that as God created the universe, he'd set earth in the middle on its foundations where it shall not be moved. Note that language comes right straight out of scripture. And that as you went up, you went through the atmosphere and you got to the level of the moon. And the moon's an important level because below the moon, things changed. But once you got to the orbit of the moon, Nothing changed. It was all perfect circles. And they had done a remarkable job with perfect circles. They, the, by the time we get to the Reformation, they had circles, and then because it's perfect, and circles are the best kind of motion, and you don't have to feel that, but you need to feel it a little bit just for a few minutes. Circles are the best. They're better than squares. They're better than rectangles. They're definitely better than triangles or anything uneven. Circles rule because it's the same all the time as you go around and it's so smooth and it's even, it's perfect. So the spheres were these perfect circles, but then when you start doing the math and you start doing the geometry, that doesn't put the planets in exactly the right place all the time. So you, the, the, the astronomers had done all kinds of adjustments and when you needed to make an adjustment, you didn't know what the adjustment looked like exactly, but you knew what it was gonna be. It was going to be a circle. So you put circles on circles on circles, and the predictions were fantastic. The eclipse that we just had, no problem. 500 years ago, predicting that eclipse, no problem. Now, would it have been the same precision that we do today? No, because there were things that they didn't fully understand, like the way that the atmosphere bends light and, and causes some refraction. There, it wasn't all the way perfect. They didn't have telescopes, so there were, there were you know, accommodations people made. They didn't have optics. You talk about guys that are spending their life looking at the stars and how many people when they're 40 can still see that far away very well, and yet they're still going through their careers in this time period functioning so no telescopes, 
great predictions. But this is part of the makeup of the universe. This is where things are bad, different, changing. That's where things are beautiful and perfect and unchanging. And above that is God. Above that is heaven. Heaven is beyond the spheres. It's beyond the spheres. It's the realm of the ultimate perfection. Above the observable lesser perfection. Above the imperfections of this changing world. And when you died, you wanted to pass through like Christ went up to heaven, that, that would have been very much more literal to them than, than we think it is. I don't know if anybody's really thought about it. I mean, after Jesus went through the cloud, I mean, where did he just, he didn't keep going up because we don't believe heaven's up anymore. What, I don't know what happened. I'm not going to speculate. But they would have thought this was very natural and reasonable. Just keep going up and you get to heaven. And before I, before I get to this last point on this section, I want to say something. There's nothing about this worldview that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous now. It's ridiculous now because we know it's not true. But it fits better. Still today, for most of us, walking around the world, things don't remain in motion, they stop. But oh yeah, I understand how it works. If we remove friction, if we remove air resistance, if we do this, if we do that. When we look at the skies, mostly what we see is them moving and us standing still. This is a reasonable and incredibly accurate representation of the world. But it does happen to be wrong. So it's not stupid. We, it's very easy to dismiss things as stupid. But here's where astrology comes in. And I'm going to skip out of what I was going to do here just a little bit and say... If you go read Calvin, you'll find something really fascinating. Calvin talks about astrology in two ways. One of them is very dismissive. In fact, it's an outright rejection, and it's an intentional. And man, when Calvin, if you've read him, when he gets after somebody, he gets after them. It's insulting. Calls them dogs and curs and idiots and all kinds of things. You, don't, you really didn't want Calvin to be after you. Calvin hated one kind of astrology. The kind of astrology that he hated was the kind where people were going around and they were looking up at the stars and they were saying, oh, well, the stars, da, 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 so therefore you're going to end up having to do this next year. Or apparently there was actually forensic astrology where people were casting, based on the stars, casting decisions on whether a person was guilty of a crime or not. Calvin hated it. One of the things that's kind of funny is he said, how come you're yelling at me for talking about predestination and you guys are out there talking like the stars have ordained everything a person's going to do tomorrow? What's wrong with you? That kind of astrology was to be rejected then, it's to be rejected now. But, but now here's the funny thing. If you read enough in Calvin, you can find some places where he sort of uncomfortably seems to talk positively about seeing signs in the heavens. Now, some of that comes because Scripture talks about the stars being put there as signs. And some of it comes in talking about, you know, that they're the star of David being, a, or um, the star of Jerusalem being a real sign of Christ being there. And there's an interesting conversation where, where Calvin seems to allow for some kinds of real symbolism in the stars. But see, here's the thing. If we were those people, that's physics. 
Because where is God? God is way out there beyond the heavens. Can God just come right down and act? Sure he can. But that's not the only way God acts. God put the stars together. He aligned them in the motion of the spheres by descending from above. There could be mechanical action where God would cause things to be different here because of the movements of his actions outside through these stars. So there was a physics that said it's reasonable to think that if things change up there, eventually it's going to work its way down and change here. Now, I say change, and it's not quite right. If you remember, I said nothing changes. We've got to have this really long internal view of things being set in motion. And if you were to read Calvin and you'd want him to say, yeah, there's none of that stuff, that's ridiculous. He says, no, the problem is some people were saying that's the only way God could act. The only way God could cause change here on earth was through what he had set up in the very beginning in the motion through the spheres. So because of this worldview and seeing the stars in this perfect sphere up there, there was a viewpoint of divine action that would allow one kind sort of astrology, a sort that we really wouldn't care much for now, a sort that we would outright have no way to float now. And little tiny last comment before we move on, I have no clue and I'm really curious, somebody that really was committed to astrology today, and maybe there is nobody, maybe they're all, they're all charlatans, maybe they don't really, but I wonder, are, are there people who are committed to astrology who say, yeah, the earth is stable and there's these crystalline spheres and if you go from the outside, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. But if you think that, it actually does make a little bit of sense. Okay, so now let's move on. So we've got this, and here's, remember the very beginning. We, this is a reasonable thing. If you were an educated person, you would believe this. And you would believe this as an educated person as part of a large system of all of the beliefs. Astronomy was one of the greatest of the disciplines. It was actually considered to be separate than physics, although related. Physics was subordinate. But theology was the queen, and it all hung together. So this is not only your physical worldview, but this is the physical worldview that's woven into all of the church's beliefs, all of your academic beliefs. This is a part and parcel of how you see the world. And so now let's move in because, remember, the Reformation starts in 1517, Although you can always go back further and identify the things like Dr. Lamerson did. We'll call it 1517 with Martin Luther and his theses. And that attacked the authority of the church to say this is the way everything is. And here's how, in the providence of God, remarkably in some places, the stars helped do the same thing. So we've got this worldview and it's built into everything else and it's comprehensive and the church is at the top of it and theology is right there. And by the way, it's interwoven with interpretation of scripture in ways that any reasonable person would have done. Holding scripture to be inerrant, you would have seen scripture to authorize this worldview because scripture in many places says, the earth has been set on its foundations and shall not be moved. And the most natural way to read that is that the earth shall not be moved. You don't read it that way, and I'm glad that you don't, and we'll get to Calvin in a little while, but that is the most natural reading because, you know, that's just what it says. 
But see, here's what starts to happen. We've got this immutable sphere. We've got all this great stuff. And this guy named Copernicus comes along and he says, nope, nope, the earth isn't in the middle. The sun is in the middle. One of the reasons Copernicus thought that, and the same thing is true of Kepler, um, Kepler especially, is because they saw the sun as really symbolic of the dignity and the person of God. They didn't think it was God, although there were people earlier in history that did think that, and so they were also heliocentric. But they saw that as representative of God. And they said it is beneath the dignity of God to have his representation or his image or his symbol. Symbol's a better word than image because of the other ways image gets used. That can't, that can't revolve around the earth. The earth's got to revolve around that. Great. It does nothing better for predicting where the stars will be. See, if you go read your history textbook, Copernicus is our first name that probably popped up. It's probably a physics textbook or a middle school science textbook. They'll say Copernicus was right and nobody listened until. No, Copernicus said something for religious reasons and it didn't predict anything better. It did make the math a lot easier though. Remember we said we had all these circles on circles? If you put the sun in the middle, you lose a lot of the extra circles. And so doing the math of astronomy was easier on a Copernican system. But so what? We'll get back to that point in a little while with Galileo. Then we have this guy, and Tycho Brahe, if you have the chance to go read about Tycho, Tycho's great. You can read about gold noses and the death, the, the tragic death of a drunken moose and all kinds of different things that Tycho has as a story. It's really pretty interesting. But for, for Tycho, he's interesting to us right now for two reasons. One of them is because in 1572, a new star appeared. Now, if a new star appeared tomorrow, we'd all get really excited and think that was great. Because this new star was a supernova. And a supernova, and again, in the providence of God, this is interesting because we have two of these in the space of 25 years. And the most recent one, there hasn't been one since then. This supernova appears in the sky. But remember, what do we believe about the heavens? The heavens never change. So quickly, everybody answers the question. It's no problem. Our whole entire worldview hasn't been destroyed. Because it just has to be something that's below the moon. Remember, below the moon, things can change. Cloudy day turns into a sunny day. No problem. Things can change in the heavens. They've just got to be down here, down low. But here's the problem. Tycho is a pretty superior astronomer for a guy that he's, uh, you, you can find places, this is the last great astronomer who never used a, um, never used a telescope purely by eye, he figured out, you know, parallax, if you, if you were on one side of the eclipse that happened, like if you were up in New York, the eclipse would have, would have failed to close, like it failed to close here, on the opposite side of the sun. The moon is closer to us, so if you're in the middle, the sun got completely blacked out. If you were on one side far enough, the sun never got completely blacked out and you would have seen it almost black out on one edge of the sun. And if you were on the other side, you would have seen it black out the other way because the sun is further away and so the angle doesn't change as much. Parallax is just geometry, it's triangles and they were pretty good at it and Tycho figured out, wait a second, there's no parallax with that star. 
That new star has got to be above the moon. In fact, that new star is all the way out. It has no parallax. It's got to be all the way out there. The heavens change. Now, in your middle school science textbook, somewhere along the way, it said Tycho Brahe, and it said that he found a new star, and it may have even said that he proved that that it was outside of the moon. And you would, like any natural human being alive today, have yawned and said, is this going to be on the test? Because who cares? Oh, it's far away. It's out there in heaven, big deal. But this is staggering. People said, no way, that cannot be. The heavens don't change. Now, the heavens don't change. Where does that come from in Scripture? Well, it doesn't come from Scripture, but it does come from a successful picture of the universe that's come from years and years and years, and that's integrated into a whole view that does do things with Scripture and does seem to understand it. And so this is a big deal. It's the first big deal. One last interesting thing about Tycho, Tycho was a Lutheran. He actually apparently got in trouble for following Melanchthon, whose name I don't think we've heard in one of these yet, more than he should have. So it didn't take very long for you to be able to get in trouble within the Protestant churches for being the wrong flavor of Protestant. But um, uh, Tycho recognized how much better the math was in Copernicus's system But when he read scripture, he saw those scriptures about the foundations of the earth and it's not being moved as being so clear and so compelling that he created a new picture of the universe where the earth was in the middle, the moon went around the earth, the sun went around the earth, and all the other planets went around the sun. And Kepler, who was a student of his, we're moving on to next, he and Kepler got into arguments And the reason that Tycho would not give up his commitment to that picture of the universe that died out really, really, really fast is because he was committed to the authority of Scripture and he saw that as establishing that the earth cannot be moved. So now Kepler is the next person in our middle school bad day of too many names and dates and why do I have to know this stuff? And you might have had a little note that said, and Kepler figured out, that the orbits were ellipses. And I got to tell you, for a long time, I thought, who cares? Who ca- I mean, it's an ellipse. You took a circle and smushed it a little bit. What's the big deal? But here's the big deal. You can't have an ellipse in heaven. Now, notably, you can draw an ellipse by putting a circle on a circle and drawing it just the right way. In fact, if you had, remember the, was it Spirograph, those little things you got when you were kids, you stuck the pen in it and you did it. If you'd gotten just the right size, you could have made one pop out an ellipse by having a circle inside of a circle. Those epicycles really worked. Kepler, though, Kepler was, remember I said this already, he was studying to be a, a minister. He decided to stay in the sciences instead. He remained committed to the church deeply throughout his whole life. He got in trouble, couldn't study in one place because he refused to convert to Catholicism because he was a Protestant. But Kepler looked at the heavens and he said, it's got to be the display of God's symmetry and God's beauty and I'm going to find the answer. And he did all this work with polygons and different shapes to try to figure out the orbits. And it's amazing how much he wanted everything to be beautiful. But he was committed to this picture of the sun as being a symbol of the dignity and deity of God, not God, 
but a symbol of it. And so he adopted that same viewpoint that we're about to hear from with Galileo of planets orbiting around the sun because he thought it was a better theological picture. Now, it's interesting because we're going to get to Galileo now, and we're set up for this conversation about the Galileo story that you haven't heard. Because after you had maybe the sentence about ellipses, and you said, who cares about ellipses, um, you, you might have a little more about Galileo. Usually, the Galileo story goes something like this. Uh, Galileo was really smart, and science is good, and so the church hated him because church people are stupid. Right, I mean, more or less, the way the story plays out is that Galileo figured out that the sun was in the middle of the solar system. Actually, he would have said the sun was in the center of the universe. If it makes you feel any better, he was just about as wrong. He was only better by 93 million miles out of, you know, 17 billion light years. So it's, it's not like he was great by percentage on where the center of the universe was. But Galileo became... I don't know if that's me or not. I feel like I stopped moving. Um, Galileo became convinced that Copernicus was right. He had some early conversations with Kepler, and Kepler was apparently always disappointed that Galileo never talked about his work. And the best I can figure, it's because Galileo was a Roman Catholic and Kepler was a Protestant, because I don't know why they wouldn't have interacted more. But Galileo takes this picture of the sun as the center of the universe, and he does make it better because he gets access to telescopes And he looks through telescopes and he sees the imperfections on the moon, which everybody had said, well, those can't be real imperfections. That's just got to be effects from the atmosphere. He looks and he sees bumps and wiggles. You can't have bumps and wiggles. You look at the moon and you think bumps and wiggles, no big deal. But the moon was in the heavens. It had to be a perfect disk. It had to be pure. It had to be complete. It had to be exact. Bumps and wiggles were no good. He also looked through his telescope and he saw uh, planets, he saw moons around Jupiter. And he became convinced by that and by the fact that refinements of Copernicus's theory made the math so, so, so much simpler, really not simple, still you had to be really good. He became convinced that the sun was really the middle of the solar system. But see, here's the thing. If you're that person, if you're that person that we talked about at the beginning and stuff has got its place and the place of stuff is there and the spiritual has its place and the place of the spiritual is up there and heaven's up there and the the universe makes sense and physics makes sense and if the earth was out away from the sun, it would do what matter does. It would immediately try to pop into the sun and destroy itself. And Galileo didn't offer a new system. He didn't offer an explanation of how this was. He just said it was. And the dominant part of what the church said to him was, look, we recognize that the math is simpler. And we find this really interesting. But you need to stop teaching that this is how it is. We, you, you can teach 
this system as a mathematical representation. And you can say to your students, look, it used to be that only three of you could do this math, and now I've got a trick so a hundred of you can do this math. But just tell them, I don't really think that's the way it is. Just tell them, I think the earth is in the middle. But if you put the sun, if you act as if the sun is in the middle, the math works better. And Galileo said, no way. It was a long process. It wasn't quite that quick, but Galileo argued hard. And notably for that whole story about Galileo's the smart scientist and the church is where all the stupid people were, you've got a quote at the very end of this that we won't be able to read right now, which is part of Galileo's argument. And if you read through the, Cal- the Calvin quotes, you'll find that Galileo is talking about reading the Bible nearly exactly the same way that Calvin is. But Galileo finally gets so frustrated that his old friend, the Pope, who had been arguing with him on this, Galileo takes all of the Pope, his old friend, the Pope, his, the Pope's stories, arguments, excuse me, writes them up in a story about two people arguing about whether the sun is in the middle. And you have the hero who is Galileo and presents all of Galileo's stories, and you have the other character who's named basically Bozo, the idiot, the fool, and quotes all of the Pope's arguments. And at that point in time, the church finally says, forget it. Now, should the church have said forget it? Absolutely not. One of the things along the way that I want to point out so we can get to it at the end, and I know i got to move because I think I've gone longer than I should have uh, through these parts of the stories, some of the theologians of the church, those people that were at the queen of the sciences, when, when Galileo said, look, look up there, here's a telescope, look at the moons around Jupiter, their worldview was under attack, their whole picture of the universe was under attack, and they said, I don't want to look. And they refused to look. And so the church was not without excuse. But Galileo was not without excuse either. And he didn't have the evidence or the system to prove that he was right. You could do just as well with a little more complicated math with the old system. So then I have it, and we're going to go through it really quickly. Newton. Newton does something that changes all of this. And if you were to say, when did the time come that you would really have been foolish to disbelieve Galileo? I would say it's somewhere around the time that Newton publishes his Principia Mathematica. Because what Newton does is he gives us the math for the theory of gravitation. And he's able to take that And he's able to pull out all of Kepler's ellipses and the rules of the way the orbits work out of his theory of gravitation. And he provides, ah, ball went away. He provides an alternative to Aristotle. Newton puts the final nail in that old worldview. So Aristotle, I mean, really sort of still makes sense. He's wrong. But it is sensible, it's reasonable, it's like our world is. And Galileo didn't offer a better alternative. He he had some parts and pieces of it. He did some very good work. He was an excellent scientist. But he was terrible politically. He was terrible politically, and he was wrong about how compelling the evidence was. Was he right? 
Yes, he was right. Was it sure, a sure thing that he would be right? Really not, based on what he was able to present. So, now let's get to this part. Remember I said the first half an hour, and it's probably, I don't know where we are on that 10%, but um, the first half an hour was going to feel like it wasn't much about the church. Now let's go back to a point that we made at the beginning and see how this, the stars, and in many ways, this supernova as one of the biggest pieces, which has an interesting thing, an astrologer believed, you see a new star, it's a portent of great change, and because of that new star, you had real great change. Chalk one up for the astrologers. But because of that supernova, and then because of telescopes, astrology died, and the church changed. Because here's what happens when we go back. The church as this one body that owned all of theology, looked at Martin Luther and said, look, you either need to come back in or you need to be out of all of it. You're out. You're out of the body of Christ. And they, the church owned all of what could be believed. And it owned, as the owner of theology and the interpreter of Scripture, when you went to Scripture and it said, the earth has been set on its foundations and it shall not be moved, and you had an Aristotelian theory that had stood for thousands, well, for a thousand years, explaining things well, over a thousand years, and those two aligned together, the church had the authority to say, that's what Scripture says, that's what it means. And then the heavens said no. The stars took away the church's authority to supernova, and there hasn't been one since then, helped destroy a worldview that helped to support the academic and interpretive authority of the church that the reformers were attacking because they needed people to be able to get back into the Bible. So in this really remarkable way, the stars changed the church. And the stars opened the door to helping the Reformation to go forward. It's, it's kind of it's crazy. Like we said, score one from, for the astrologers. But I want to do one more thing before we go on. Because we've, we've got this place in which we've kind of answered the Reformation part. But I, I want to spend a little time, because we haven't done much, the Protestant church, and we haven't said much about where we are today, and there may be some question marks that things have raised for you, talking about John Calvin. Because Calvin, to me, is really fun in this situation. Because Calvin is landed, and I gave you dates so that you can kind of lay this out, because there's so much going on in the history. It's this big, complex web of developments. And you can almost think that there's, uh, there's all kinds of stuff, like, that you can almost feel like separate histories. But the Reformation is happening, the scientific revolution is happening, and we've, we've got this demise, the fall of the theology's place as the queen. We've got the ending, by help, assistance of the stars, of the church's authority over a time period in which Calvin is writing. So Calvin's going to hit early. So remember, we've, we've put ourselves into this spheres. Calvin's there with us. If you read Calvin and you have in mind that picture of the universe, you'll read him rightly. You'll read him rightly. But Calvin starts to answer in, in Genesis 1, you find out about a controversy that I had never heard of. 
And this was the controversy. See, those astronomers spent so much time looking at the universe and studying the stars. They had figured out, remember we talked about parallax, they had figured out that Saturn was really far away. And then from how far away Saturn was, remember this is early, this is back kind of Copernican type time period. We're at the beginning of our narrative again. By looking at parallax, they figured out that Saturn was bigger than the moon. But then people in the church had gotten upset. They'd gotten upset because Genesis 1 clearly teaches two greater lights and a bunch of lesser lights. Calvin loved astronomy. And so I do want to read this quote. How am I doing on time? I meant to put a phone up here. Where, what are we at? Somebody that's got it. Don't lie to me. Okay, so I really got to finish up. We're right there at the end. So that's okay. Let, let, me, let me not read the long one. Let me read the short one here. Uh, Calvin on Psalm 136.7. In speaking, and this is, this is the, if you do the long one on Genesis, he's doing the same thing here because it comes back up in the Psalms. But Calvin is talking about what's going on if Scripture is, an iner- is inerrant, and he's one of the main teachers of the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. How does he help this controversy with people in his church that are saying, if you love that astronomy stuff, you hate the Bible because here's what the Bible says. And he reintroduces, but because of the stars, it helps to really take off in a way that it happened before, the understanding of accommodation as a principle of how revelation is given to us. Let me read him, and then we'll pull it back out. The Holy Spirit had no intention to teach astronomy, and in proposing instruction meant to be common to the simplest and most uneducated person, He made use by Moses and the other prophets of popular language that none might shelter himself under the pretext of obscurity. As we will see, men sometimes very readily pretend an incapacity to understand when anything deep or recondite is submitted to their notice. Accordingly, as Saturn, though bigger than the moon, is not so to the eye owing to his greater distance, his being Saturn, we wouldn't do it that way, the Holy Spirit would rather speak childishly than unintelligibly to the humble and the unlearned. Now this is a really big deal because I suspect you didn't realize it, but you've been doing this when you read Scripture and you hear the pieces of this old worldview still there. But on the really simple approach to Scripture that says, whatever I read, that's what it is, There was a problem for astronomy, and Calvin, who's one of the people that people today will stand firm on, is one of the ones to help us to understand, look, God's purpose in teaching through revelation is to bring his word that he intends to a people that need to be able to understand it. His purpose is not to speak to the astronomers about astronomy. It's fascinating if you read the long quote. Calvin seems to think that Moses could have done it. Like God teaches him about the whole universe, but says, now just don't tell them that. That's interesting. I don't don't know that I believe Moses could have talked about dark matter and quantum physics. But the, 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 the work in Scripture by the Holy Spirit is to make sure the scriptural, spiritual truths are transmitted to an audience of everybody. And so what God intends to teach is taught inerrantly by using the viewpoints of the people about those things that God does not intend to teach. 
And so here's when we go back and we, now, we both go back and come forward and we have these big comprehensive worldviews and they include, as they should, the, uh, the authority of Scripture and the infallibility of Scripture. The thing that we, that we learn from this is we want this worldview and it ought to be comprehensive. And when some evidence comes from the outside that seems to push against that whole worldview, we ought to push back against it. We should have been people who said to Galileo, now hold on a minute, I'm not so sure about that. Because if you were one of them, like Calvin, planted on this solid earth and believing in the spheres, you would have thought Copernicus was a nut and Galileo was not far behind. And by the way, Calvin did. There are not many places, but he does indicate awareness of the Copernican theory, and he basically says that's idiocy. What's wrong with those people? They hate God. It's, it's, it's bizarrely angry in Calvin. I mean, Calvin's angry a lot, but it's weird that he gets so upset about that given that he's the guy that gave us this language about Saturn. But see, this comprehensive worldview that is supported by Scripture And then also, though, notice something, the worldview the people had, which seemed to be supported by Scripture, also caused them to read Scripture a particular way. Scripture says, the earth shall not be moved. I believe the earth doesn't move. And in the web of my worldview, these two hang together, and it seems like if I give up one, I give up them both. But... That isn't necessarily true. And the lesson that we can now take into it is, while we should have been slow, and you'd have been right to be on the side to say, Galileo, slow down, hold up. Now, hopefully you would have looked through the telescope. And hopefully you wouldn't have excommunicated him. But if it's true that all truth is God's truth, then there are no ideas to be afraid of. Look through the telescope. Because the telescope will either give you falsehood and then it will fade away. Maybe not in time that you would like. Maybe not as fast as you would like. Maybe not the way you would like. But if it's false, it will fade away. Look through the telescope. But if it's true, then it will reveal to us that like Calvin and like all of these people with this perfect picture of worldview, if truth comes to us unexpectedly, it will reveal to us that we have interpreted Scripture to say what it doesn't say. And we've taken our opinion and we've elevated it to God's truth and we've created a system that can't be touched. So somehow, and this isn't easy, We have to be able to be able to avoid being any of the people in this story. We have to be able to hold firm to God's place as the the creator of all that is, the source of all truth, to know that at least in as much as he's revealed it, everything that's true is his truth. We don't know everything, but a comprehensive worldview is a good thing, but... It's got some mud in it. We're more wrong than we think. And if we can just have that little bit of, I really think this is right, but man, I might be wrong. That's interesting. Then we could have avoided, then we could avoid being like the Roman Catholic Church that finally says, get out of here to Galileo. 
We could avoid being like the Calvin who now has in print this, this language of what kind of a moron would believe Copernicus? That's paraphrase. We can be people that embrace the reality that God's the source of all truth. And that reformation may come again, unexpectedly, and of ideas that we didn't think could possibly have just been ours. So we can be both conservative. We can be both conservative and open to new ideas all at once in a way that preserves God's truth but listens to him when he speaks to us. So I hope it was, uh, I hope it was enjoyable as we did it. I don't know. It didn't go exactly the direction that I expected at every point. So you may have some things here that were different than you thought. I'm happy to take some questions. We're close on time, but, um, you know, any place that I didn't speak clearly, or if you just need to hear a little bit more about, about why this, you know, hopefully at this point in time it, it makes sense that a new star and an ellipse is a big deal, where it never would have before. But anyways, I'll keep talking, and then there'll be no questions. Yeah, no, let's take a few, let's <laughs> take five or so minutes for any questions that might have come up uh, that Tim might have raised or you have follow-up with. Here you go, Chuck. One of the things you didn't get to on Back yep. to the Church was uh, the Queen's Demise. I mean, cogito ergo sum there, I think, therefore I am. Yeah, okay, so I, I did, I kind of skipped through that point to go quickly. I, I didn't want to skip it, so beautiful. It's almost like I set you up. So the Queen's Demise, one of the things here is, and, it's, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help with another, if you didn't study philosophy, I'll help with another middle school poster board um, associated with this. The Queen's Demise, what I mean by that is this the culmination of this whole thing really unseated theology. Now, that's actually not good. Theology should be the queen of the sciences. But in European culture, the destruction of this picture of the authority of the church and the authority of the previous voices and the, the perfection of the system took theology out of the top. The disciplines kind of went off on their own, and there's still people that are pushing back and they're trying to do comprehensive work, but the theology kind of got bumped out of her throne. She didn't, she, she didn't move fast enough in some places where she should have. When theology moves fast, it's usually bad. But if theology doesn't move at all, that's bad too. Because we do learn, and we do have errors, and culture shapes the way we think. But then the other thing was uh, this quote, I think therefore I am. I'm going to put this on the list with ellipses and brand new stars of things that I thought, I don't get what the big deal is. I don't get what the big deal is. But the big deal here and the way this phrase, the reason that that pops up on a poster and you see uh, that guy Descartes, um, you see his name underneath it when you're in middle school. And then maybe you had the experience of studying a guy named Descartes in college and nobody ever told you it was the same guy. Um, but the reason I think therefore I am was so powerful is because part of what Rene Descartes did is he said, forget all of that stuff that I've been taught. I don't believe any of it anymore. I'm going to doubt everything. I'm going to doubt everything I've ever been told. And I'm going to see if there's anything that I can believe at all. Because, man, those authorities were wrong. They were wrong about crystal spheres. They were wrong about immutable heavens. They've been wrong about theology. They were wrong about how to interpret the Bible. I'm starting over. And he gets to this bottom line point where he says, you know what I can't doubt? I'm doubting, so there must be an I who's doubting. So actually the better quote is almost, I doubt 
therefore I am. But because there's a me who's doubting, I may not even be in this room. I may be misled by an evil demon and only think that there's a room here and a fire and only think that I'm a soldier hiding out in the wintertime, but I can't help knowing that I exist. And when he does that, we talk about the earth getting taken out of the center of the universe and the sun getting put in place. When Descartes does that, he makes himself the center of the universe. And that's this fantastic history point at which all of the modernity that went after it was just full of people becoming the center of the universe. I'll figure it out. I need the pathway. I've got the answers. And rather than it being this huge historical collaboration of ideas, you've got these little atomic pieces and pinpoints of people trying to figure everything out. So that little phrase that was on a poster board really is, it, it's symbolic of the death of the queen. Good question. Yeah. If I can get this out the way I want to, but is there a way of putting this together um, as far as scripture is concerned and its understandability that we are kind of like children and so there's a level of understanding of scripture as if we are children like who might believe in Santa Claus. But as you go down through the centuries, the truth comes out in a more mature way and uh, the idea of Santa Claus Well, sort of, because I would differentiate two kinds of things. One of them is there's, there is progressive revelation that then causes us to go back and interpret things differently. So that without the New Testament, we wouldn't see Christ in the Old Testament nearly the way that we do now. The way Christ fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies was not exactly how everybody expected him to fulfill it. So there, there is a sense in which, yes, there's a progression. I think what I'd be careful about is it'd be the, it, it would be, you know, if I, if I told, if I used Santa Claus with a bunch of kids, and I, I, I understand, I don't want to push it too far, but if I use Santa Claus with a bunch of kids to help explain who Christ was and to present the gospel, there's nothing wrong with that. But Santa Claus making an appearance in Scripture would become problematic depending on how clear it was that it was only being used as an illustration or an allegory or a, a figure of speech in some way. I think this is more of a identifying what's being taught. And what Calvin is saying is, look, God is not teaching astronomy here. He's using astronomy to teach about himself. In Genesis 1, he's using astronomy to teach about himself as the creator of the stars and the heavens, which were a bigger deal to those folks back then than they are to us. We don't look at the sky with idolatry, and we don't look at the sky with this kind of, we, we just don't care about the constellations the way that they did at one point in time. So what the predominant claim is to take the people's belief about the stars in order to do the teaching, and the teaching is God as the creator and the governor of them and the one who brought them into being. And so we, we want to be careful, and, and this is true all the time. Scripture is sometimes very easy to interpret, not as nearly as often as I wish it was. Sometimes it's very hard to interpret. 
Sometimes it's only in a rich tapestry of all kinds of other scriptures that you can start to see where the meaning comes out. We want to be very careful. Like I said, we would look through the telescope, but do it cautiously. We also want to, we, we also want to use this language of accommodation cautiously. If it's in God's word, that needs to be taken very seriously. But I would wager a guess that, all, that no one in this room has ever been deeply troubled by the fact that we revolve around the sun because scripture says that the earth shall not be moved. You've just probably never cared. And I, I would guarantee it happened one time with, with, a, with a flat earth guy. But otherwise, I would, I would have previously guaranteed that nobody's ever been bothered by the idea that Saturn is bigger than the moon. It's not quite nobody. I can never say nobody again. But it never occurred to me, who would care? You go outside and you look and it's smaller. But if you thought, if you thought for sure that Saturn was actually smaller, and scripture says it's a lesser light, then if somebody says Saturn is bigger, it's going to bug you in a way it would never have bugged any of us. Yeah. I think we're probably out of time, but if, was there a question? Okay. Um, but I want to do one more thing, if you don't mind, since you sure. could speak about it much better than I could. Um, you know, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking is, um, I mean, it's a, it's a case study in um, how did Christians still uh, read their Bibles, hold on to Scripture, hold on to doctrine, in light of the very contemporary cultural issues. I think what you guys are doing, uh, coming up with this, oh, yeah, in terms yeah. of uh, how to read your Bible in light of today's issues, if you could just talk about that a little bit, okay. and then pray for us, and we'll be done. Okay, that'll be great. Yeah, if you want to grab one of these cards back in the back, if you're interested in it, we've got a, Knox is putting on a little series that's um, called Learning to Leading. It's, it's intended, I mean, anybody's invited, but it's intended for people that are trying to do small groups. And what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and take some really weird topics, I mean, maybe you thought today was really weird. It'll be even weirder when we do some of these. We're going to try and take some, some weird topics that highlight real kinds of questions that you get. You may know this, but sometimes you get weird questions in small groups. Uh, and if you don't know that, you haven't been in a small group. Sometimes, in, you know, whatever it happens to be. So we're going to, try to, we're going to try to do some weird questions. We're going to try to have them related to the kinds of weird questions that people really ask. And then... We're going to try to show you how we answered them out of Scripture. And we're going to try to give you some less, you know, just some ideas of how to teach a small group as well. So you come out of it and you grab one of these things. You'll see it on there. The idea would be you walk away. You've got a lesson you could teach in theory if your small group doesn't have a curriculum. You have a little bit of a sense of how to ask modern questions of a really old Bible. And you have some basic lessons on how to teach in a small group setting, which isn't always easy. So that's the goal. That's the plan for it. We're doing a four-week pilot. Love to have you come. You don't have to be leading a small group. If you are, you know, we think it'll be even better. Uh, reading the Bible with Harry Potter. Reading the Bible with Stephen King. Reading the Bible with Jack Kevorkian. And reading the Bible with Richard Dawkins. And the bylines is Harry Potter, a Christian book. Why is evil active in God's world? Should we ever live with suffering? And is it stupid to be a Christian? So we're going we're gonna to kind of do those, and those are the kinds of things, I think, when you get to those bylines that really do come out. So, well, uh, thank you for being here. Let me pray and uh, appreciate your time. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. 
and that that is the foundation on which you've built your church and that you've called your people by the gospel, the good news contained therein, spoken out by your people. You've called people into your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that there is a gift, a gracious gift of eternal life that by your will is given to us and that you call us not only just to live knowing that, but also to be active in your kingdom, that as we speak your word and as we bring that good news of salvation to the world, that through your people you work your will and your church grows. So Lord, I pray that as we get together tonight in things like this, that we would be strengthened in our faith and be able to dig more deeply into your word, that we would see the the struggles and the history that's your history and the struggles of your church before us, and that we would be emboldened in the lives that you've called us to, living for you in the world. In your name we pray. Amen.